Welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of the hosts, Asia Bonilla. And I'm Charles Sheelan, the other host. And today we are discussing the second half of The Sorceress. That means that we are halfway through our second series, The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel by Michael Scott. We're a new podcast with the Nerd Party Network, and we're reading and rereading young adult books and sharing them with each other. Yep, you've probably heard us say this a couple times at this point, but we're best friends, and we wanted to share books with each other, so we turned that product into a podcast. We started with a series Asia had read, now we're reading one that I've read, so you get a range of perspectives. I'm rereading, Asia's reading for the first time. And part of the way we run the show is that the newcomer, me in this case, gets to summarize the reading in case you couldn't read along with us. So I'll go ahead and quickly summarize the second half of The Sorceress. So Josh, Sophie, Palamedes, and Nicholas finally escape the scrapyard, and they go to pick up Gilgamesh. They drive to Stonehenge, and Gilgamesh teaches the twins the magic of water. Paranel is still trapped on Alcatraz, but she beats the old man of the sea. She is able to reach Scatty, who we finally find out is okay, and back with Joan and Francis, and they plan to use the Notre Dame Lay Gate to get back to Alcatraz to help her. But when the two women use the gate, they end up in the Pleistocene era. I think I said that right. I looked up the pronunciation. Machiavelli and Billy get to the island, but with the Morgan's help, Paranel is able to escape. And at Stonehenge, the twins and Nicholas escape through the gate, leaving Shakespeare and Palamedes behind. And Dee finally gets his life's desire of the sword, Clorant. So we finish this book with the twins in San Francisco with Nicholas and Parnell. Billy and Machiavelli are trapped on Alcatraz and they have failed. Dee is in London with all the swords of power. Well, two of the swords of power, but he has also failed. Francis is still in Paris, Palamedes and Shakespeare are in the UK, and Scatty and Joan are also in San Francisco, but they're in the Pleistocene era, so that's not good. Anyway, that was a lot, there was a lot of major chapters to keep track of during this reading, a lot going on. You were actually right. He does have all four swords of power. He told D tells us that he's had three forever, and he's been trying oh, to get Clarence. Yeah, 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 I almost yeah. We just about haven't that. met the other two yet, but you were right. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. We have a lot of major characters, a lot of plot lines. I think that now we have all the main characters. We're going to keep tracking for the rest of the series. There, pro- I know there are more coming, but I think that we've got the main ones. But I probably should stop talking now because I'll have to eat my words. I'll say we don't have any more, and then we'll get twenty more next book. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'll quickly give you my impression. I really liked this section a lot, mainly because Paranel finally escapes from Alcatraz. And in particular, chapter 67, which is the chapter where she escapes, is for now my favorite chapter of the entire series because it was just such a funny scene and we'll get more into it later in the podcast. But I also just liked that the end of this book kind of finally marks a win for the good guys. You know, Nick and Perry have finally been reunited and they're all back in San Francisco. So I just really liked that. Yeah, my first impression or my impression generally of this reading was generally that Paranel is a boss. And again, we'll get into it, but she's just really powerful and talented. And I'm such a fan. 
I forgot that we lose Scatty and Joan to the Pleistocene era so early. I knew it was coming, but I didn't know when. So that was a big shock that I was like, we're halfway through and we've already lost them. So we'll see where that goes in the next book. But let's go ahead and dive in to the reading. Yes. And thank goodness I wrote immediately that someone is finally making sense because Palamedes finally tells them that it's time to go or they are going to die because everybody's like, we want to stay and fight at the junkyard. And he's like, nope, you know, some battles you fight, some battles it's time to go. So he finally, someone's making some sense. Yeah, I was relieved that he finally took it or that they finally took it seriously. But like Josh, I was really disgusted by Shakespeare's conjuring where he, you know, creates the snakes and the hedgehogs and frogs. Like, so gross. Like, Josh's reaction of why there always have to be snakes was exactly my reaction, too. I was just happy there were no bugs involved, so I was fine. I think they had, like, they were, like, worms or something, but that doesn't bother me. Yeah, those are basically tiny snakes, so they're gross. No, we've moved past the spiders. I'm good to go. Well... We should just mention that during the escape, the twins are pretty great. I know we give them a lot of hard, we give them a hard time for being overconfident. And I stand by that. I think that they are overconfident. But when they are getting away and they're trapped between Kerninus and D, Josh basically ties with D. He's fighting with the sword and neither of them really wins. But Sophie kind of single-handedly immobilizes the Archon. So, they are really capable. They're they're very good. I still think they're cocky, but I think they're pretty powerful. We shouldn't forget that. Yeah, I'll definitely admit that they, they're definitely very powerful. It's really clear. It's more just where I feel that they get, like we said, cocky, a little bit arrogant. Is like they don't seem to remember the idea that, you know, once they use those super powerful powers, like Sophie passes rest. out. Like they usually pass out. So it's like they can only really use so much before it overwhelms them. And also... With Josh, I mean, his all was because of the sword. Like, Clarant kind of took over his body because, as we know, he obviously isn't that good on his own with sword fighting. So, obviously, the sword being connected to him is somehow making him really good. But at that point, he still has no magical powers. Oh, yeah. Well, you're absolutely right that Josh's ability with Clarant is mostly because of Clarant's ability with humans. I And, I, you know, I love a good Josh bashing. So, you know, feel free. <laughs> Yes, and then I think we need to point out the fact that D did indeed fail. And he was given very explicit instructions to not fail, and he was given help from an elder and an archon, even though Bastet really didn't help at all. She kind of just stood and watched and waited for D to fail. But he did fail, and now he's definitely going to be super reckless and extra vicious, and he's desperate because he does not want them to, you know, make him mortal until right before death, and then they make him immortal again. Like we said, terrible punishment. Yeah, he's definitely going to keep trying, but he's in danger now. And that, yeah, D's failure is is really, it's going to, it's obviously important. And I do think that, yeah, I was reading it. I was like, Bastet didn't do anything. Like, she just stands there next to D and then is like, he failed. That's that's all. I was like, um, what was the point of having this elder on your side if she didn't at least bring like crazy cat people this time? Like, that's what I she did the last she, time. I think she wanted D to fail. That's why she didn't help. Yeah, she was there as a supervisor rather mm-hmm. than she was a chaperone. <laughs> <laughs> and we should con- cover because we're right there. We should cover Nicholas and Sophie's conversation in the car once they've escaped. 
Yes. So Nicholas tells Sophie that they are the descendants of gods. So I was like, maybe once they heard this, they'll finally begin to understand that, you know, the full mouths didn't choose them. Like they were always fated to be special. Yeah. She's like, I want to go home. And he's like, that's not ever going to happen the way you thought it was. Like he says, you have the DNA of the original twins. Like you're not, it, it doesn't have to, like, yes, him and Paranel sought them out, but, like, they were always going to be flagged for something special. And, yeah, I hope you're right that maybe they'll stop being whiny about it now. And we do get this sort of declaration from the Dark Elders. It was last reading, but from Nicholas, it was this reading that basically everything will end on the summer solstice, which is kind of like Percy Jackson. Doesn't one of the books in Percy Jackson, like, have to deal with the summer solstice? The first book is with the summer solstice and the yeah. lightning thief. But, yeah, that is funny. And... Oh, yeah. Well, also, like, they go back, the Legate goes back to Mount Tam, which is, you know, obviously where the, uh, do, 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 the, the uh, Titans Mount the Titans, something. Yeah. They like, keep their magical fortress on Mount Tamalpais in Percy Jackson. Yeah. And we've always had God overlap because, like, they're both mythology series, and that's kind of the reason we want to start this show, this podcast with two mythology series to show, like, different approaches to, to mythology fantasy world building. But... I just thought it was really funny that we're like, oh, we're back to solstice cycles and Mount Tamalpais. Yeah, I noticed that too. And on happier news, let's pop over to San Francisco where Perinel is absolutely crushing it. Yeah, when she defeated Nereus with just one spell, I just was like, he just ran away because she like burnt him or whatever with like one spell and he was just out of there. Like, she's just such a boss. Yeah, like she pricks him with the spear as well, and he's basically in tears running away. It's really funny. Yeah, but then we also, we had already kind of predicted the dilemma that she has. And Paranel tells Juan that her and Nick should have fought back and killed or imprisoned Dee when they had the chance, you know, throughout their like 600 years running away from him. And Juan even points out that wouldn't have stopped the Dark Elders, so I'm with Nick on this one, that, you know, by killing D, it would really just make them no better than the Dark Elders. Like, D is just one aspect of the ultimate problem they have. The only real solution, only real option for a solution was they did. They needed to find these powerful twins that are part of the prophecy that can ultimately save the world or destroy it. Like, that to me was the only real option for a real solution. Like, killing D would only be temporary. Yeah. You totally convinced me last episode when I brought this up. I still think that in the book series, they should have at least gone after D to get the pages of the Codex back, and I'm not shying down from that. But you're absolutely right that Palamedes was a little wrong in saying that they should have run away because D would have chased them. And even if they'd killed D, the Dark Elders would have replaced someone else. Like, we already have met. They have a bunch of different agents, and maybe none of them were as good as D, but... They could have gotten someone else. They could have trained someone else. They could have given someone else powers. Yeah. So you're absolutely right that eliminating D would have just created room for maybe it's Machiavelli that's chasing them down now, you know? like Yeah, it would have just allowed for someone else to step into that role. But then we also finally, Perinelle decides that she's going to scry Scatty. And I was so excited because I, you know, the whole book, I'm just like, what happened to Scatty? Is she okay? When is she coming back to the story? Which is also awesome because this is like just proves how amazing Paranella is because she gets the idea from Billy scrying her. Because when she blows up his vase in the last one, like she's like, someone was scrying to spy on me. 
I don't know who they are, but like she can sense that. And she's like, I'm going to use that idea against them. Like that's, she's just, she's so smart and resourceful and thoughtful. And yeah, she's a boss. Yeah. She's definitely one of, seems to be one of the most intelligent characters, which I mean, is why all the bad people there all are afraid of her and they're trying to kill her. But let's go ahead and pop back over to the UK because the rest of Paranel's story is super, super great. So we want to save that for a little bit later because I mean, just this reading, like once the bugs have been out of the equation for me, this is definitely like my favorite part of the story, which I kind of feel like I've talked about like Paranel to me, she does seem like the coolest character. It just sucks, you know, that the first half of this series, she's been in disgusting situations. So like it's that part was a turnoff for me, but I do like Paranel. But anyway, back in the UK with the twins, Nicholas, we finally meet Gilgamesh the King, who is a homeless person or tramp, as they call him. So pretty anticlimactic, but he does agree to train them in the magic of water if they agree to take away his immortality once they get the codex, the codex back. And of course, like everyone else, he says he's met the twins before. He says that he recognized them, and he also says that he saw them die. So I was just wondering, do Sophie and Josh, like, physically look like the twins, or could they possibly be the original twins reincarnated? Hmm. I can't exactly remember, slash, I have some inklings, but I definitely don't want to spoil. There's definitely a lot in common with the original twins. And what I personally think their recognition is, is the auras. I think their auras are the most pure, they're the most perfect silver and gold that have been, and the only ones who've had perfect silver gold auras were the other twins. So that's probably what people like Kerninus and Gilgamesh are sensing or recognizing is the auras. Well, I was just going to say, too, something that I just remembered right now in the moment. Near the end of the book, right before the big fight at the barn Nicholas falls asleep and he has a nightmare that he says like a recurring nightmare and it's him and Paranel at their wedding and when they turn around everybody in the like audience Mm -hmm. is a whole bunch of twins and he says they look like Sophie and Josh so that just had me wondering too is this idea of these silver and gold twins they've been looking for do they all happen to look physically the same way because I know Sophie and Josh like said they're like blonde hair light eyes I think like is that, has that been a part of it? That they, I, I, obviously we haven't gotten that much information, but I just wonder if that plays into it because then is it like they weren't just looking for twins, they were also looking for twins that like had blonde hair or looked a certain way. Mm-hmm. That was just something that kind of made me think like maybe, and since everyone seems to recognize them, mm-hmm. like just by physical appearance, I was just curious if that mattered. I want to say I don't think it does. I don't think the physical appearance matters, but I could be completely wrong. I don't remember exactly. What I definitely will say, there is a lot of common material between the original twins and Sophie and Josh. And I think that there is more, but I don't want to spoil because the few things I do remember, I think would be pretty big spoilers. So if you've read ahead and you remember, you can definitely reach out to us and talk to us individually about that. But we're not going to write it on the show. But it is something to keep a track of that these twins are, that they're recognizable. Whether it's the aura or their physical appearance. People know who they are. Yeah. Like, it is beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are the twins of legend. Yeah. So, moving on. We also find out that the swords, the elemental swords, are corruptive and corrosive. 
And Palamedes is like, you, Nicholas, you need to get that sword away from Josh, which thankfully ends up happening naturally. But apparently the elemental swords drain human memories and power until it finally ends up draining their aura. And, you know, I was wondering, like, has that been affecting Josh? Like, it seems to be, like, he feels like every time he uses it, he's more, like, fused with it. Like, I think there's even a description of, like, he couldn't let go of the sword. It was almost like his hand was burned into it. And we can definitely see how it's affecting D and, like, his need for power and, like, wanting to kill, like, the Archon and stuff to, like, gain all the knowledge. Like, really scary. Yeah, the swords are definitely corrosive and... I think that there's probably been some level of effect. I mean, we knew that they kind of, it absorbs memories a little bit because that's how Josh was able to sort of experience the need hog. But yeah, it's a very good thing that Josh is not going to be relying on the sword anymore because the swords are kind of, I mean, we hear that they've kind of like destroyed humans in the past. Mm -hmm. And the only reason Josh is able to sort of withstand is because of his pure and strong aura. But it's also not great that that D ends up with all four of them. And we'll talk about that, I think, next book. Because I think that now Josh D has all four. Stuff is going to happen. Yeah. Also, we need to do a little bit of backtracking. I got ahead of myself because we have some Machiavelli phone calls, which are awesome. And they give us a lot of background. Specifically Machiavelli. And we know that his quest, a lot of what he wants to do is he wants to understand the Dark Elders. And he's basically, over the last couple hundred years, been piecing together that there are different factions in the Dark Elders. And... He likes his master, and it kind of seems like he and his master, they're definitely not friends, but they get along pretty well, like, as well as, like, a servant and a master can. Mm -hmm. But, like, he wants his master to win, but he's keeping his options open. He's like, I'll stay friends with D if D's masters are on the other side. Like, as long as it's not hurting me with my master, I'm going to keep as many Dark Elders happy as I can. Yeah. Well, during this phone call, I just wrote down that Machiavelli's master, he referred to D's masters, plural, meaning that I would assume that that means that he has to have more than one. And it's like we were talking about before, I would then assume it was a man and a woman. Yeah. Actually, if you look in all the books, because I've been keeping track of this, I haven't said it on the show, but D's master has been referred to as singular and plural. So I already kind of, we kind of talked about last episode how like, it probably is two people, a man and a woman. But if you actually go back or you keep reading, you will see that D, sometimes they refer to it as D's master or D's masters. But, I mean, we have all but confirmed that he kind of has more than one master. But we'll leave it at that. But, yeah, like, if you read, sometimes it'll be referred to as singular and sometimes it'll be multiple. Okay, yeah, that was, this obviously was just the first time I, I noticed but anyway with still with Machiavelli he located the protagonist so easily and I was just like Machiavelli is somebody who I would not want to be on his bad side it literally took him a few minutes to figure out where they were yeah he's vicious he is a snake quite literally yeah but we need to mention that D's like I need a favor I'm in your debt and Machiavelli is like oh I already know you definitely are in my debt. Like, I haven't forgotten. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to see what he's going to, like, when he's going to put that in, get that. Yeah, get his favors reaped. He's Machiavelli. He's my favorite character. Get that debt repaid. Yeah. Also, I love his and Billy's friendship. We haven't gone to it yet, but they're, like, so cute together. Like, Machiavelli yeah. and, 
and Billy, so sweet. Well, we're going to get lots of it since they're trapped on Alcatraz. <laughs> yes, together. they are trapped. <laughs> also, I had to laugh when Machiavelli gets on the flight and he's like, I will be unreachable for 11 hours. Like, I was like, that's an old tech alert because that's not true anymore. Like, we have internet on flights now. We can take phone calls on flights. Like, back when the book was released, totally true, though. Like, you weren't supposed to turn on your computer when you're on the phone, when you're on a plane. And now he's like, I will be unreachable. It'll be like a vacation. And I was like, I feel like I check my email more on a plane because I'm bored. <laughs> anyway, and Machiavelli <laughs> ends up being a perfect segue back to Paranel and our other Parisian crew because we finally find out that Scatty is okay. She says how she did defeat Dagon but got a little scratched up in the process. But she's back with Joan and Francis in Paris. But Joan and Scatty are planning to go to San Francisco to help Paranel. Which is really exciting. We, you know, we want them back together. Also, the way that Paranel describes when she scare, when she scries them and she's like, Scatty is kind of like my daughter, even though she's 1,800 years older than me. Like, really sweet that she says it like that. Or when she's like, Joan is definitely my daughter. And I'm like, oh, so cute. I really <laughs> like that. And again, jumping ahead a little bit, but just staying with this plot line, we find out that Francis can kind of see the legates. But it's only him that can see them, which is kind of weird. And I'm not really sure why. I don't have any memory of this. I wonder if it might have to do with the fact that he stole fire from Prometheus because he got his magical powers directly from an elder and he took the powers. I don't remember. I could be projecting. But I hope we get some answer eventually because no one else can, like, see a spire of a legate. Yeah, me too. I, I hope we get answers on that. But I think we can also wrap up Scatty and Joan since we're kind of already there. Joan and Scatty, like we said, make it to Mount Tam through the ley line, but they traveled back in time by like a million years, which I wrote down, what? How did that happen? But then luckily we find, we get answers pretty much just a couple chapters later. And we find out that Machiavelli set a trap on the ley gate to make them travel back in time. So... My thing is just how are they going to get back if it was a trap? Like, because initially I was like, maybe there's something with the ley lines, like that they could get messed up or something. So I was like, maybe they did something, so they'd have to do that. But if it was literally a set trap, like maybe wouldn't Machiavelli maybe be the only person who would know how to get them back? Like, who knows? I guess, I mean, I would assume Paranel is going to have to come in and do some kind of spell or something, but. Probably. Yeah, she she'd be the person I would go to. It's, I mean, obviously I wish Machiavelli hadn't done it. I wish he was a good guy, but wow, he's so smart. He's like, the only way they were going to get out is going to be using a legate. And he's like, I just sprang this little trap, sent them to the Pleistocene era. That's the Ice Age. If you don't know what the Pleistocene era, that's the Ice Age. Also, I'm just like, how, because even if we're saying, okay, maybe Paranel is the solution, but like, how are they going to communicate with her? Both of them don't know how to do any magic, so it's not like they can scry her or anything. Like, I guess maybe she could scry them. I think I have no idea. I mean, I know that there's going to be some time travel. Again, I don't want to spoil anything because there's definitely more time travel coming on. So I don't want to go there. But I think that I have no idea. I think that eventually it will involve Francis. Maybe Francis being able to investigate the legate in Paris. Mm -hmm. Because 
Like they're gonna have to figure. They're gonna out quickly exactly figure out they really that did. they're gonna figure out that something went wrong with Joan and Scatty because they know that the Mount Tam gate works because Nicholas and the twins get there, and Francis is still in Paris, so they can probably communicate with Francis. But I don't remember how it gets resolved. I always find time travel is a very messy subject in fiction. Yeah, it because like Joan and Scatty are both immortal; they could theoretically live up into the present. Yeah. Though that's way longer than either of them has been alive yet. Well, also, but then, because they time-traveled, couldn't they run into... Themselves, yeah. Themselves in the time... I mean, that's, yeah, like, time travel so complicated. So, I don't remember. We will get a resolution, but I think that, like... I can't remember how it goes. I also... I think that maybe the Witch of Endor somehow gets involved because she does have that time vision with her mirrors and she's really powerful and she loves Scatty. So that also... I mean, it's her her granddaughter. granddaughter. I'm not really sure. Time travel is messy. Machiavelli is very smart and very evil. But I I hope that we get some answers soon-ish because, like, that's half of the book. Like, that's half of the series that they're going to be... If they can't figure it out, they will be out of our main plot for half of the series. Again, and all I want is Scatty back. <laughs> I know, because Scatty is so fun. Well, anyway, it's, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll keep reading, because I don't remember, and the few things that I do remember would be, like, major plot spoils, so I can't do that. Yeah. Well, anyway, at least Machiavelli does get instant karma, since we're going to go on to our Paranel plot and how she's able to escape. So, Billy and Machiavelli make it to Alcatraz, the island, to, and they meet up with the crow goddess right as they get off of their boat. And at first I was like, oh no, Paranel shouldn't have trusted the crow goddess because they're like, oh, where is she? But then she tells them that she's like in cell block D or something, which she's sitting in the watchtower, like she can see them. And so she does help them and it all works out. So, but this is the chapter, chapter 67. That's my new favorite chapter of the series. And it was just hilarious because, you know, she's like, even the ghost, Juan de Isla, whatever, he's like, how are you going to get them? Are you going to like cave in the the wall so that you crush them? And she's like, nope, I'm just going to steal their boat. <laughs> and so she runs, she gets on their boat and she's like driving away. And Machiavelli is like, oh, no. But then he's like, wait, maybe I won't have to call my master yet. Because Nereus, the old man of the sea, he jumps up on the boat and, you know, is like trying to attack Paranel. But she takes her spear and cuts off a couple of his octopus legs and he retreats within a few minutes. So (laughs) that whole ordeal only takes a couple minutes. And then Machiavelli gets one more glimpse of hope when the crow goddess, she ends up flying and landing on the boat. And he's like, oh, perfect. She's just going to grab her and it'll be fine. But... (laughs) The crow goddess lands on the boat and she hugs Paranel and then they wave, they both wave goodbye to Machiavelli and Billy, which, so the whole scene to me was just hilarious. Like, this is something I think that this would just be hilarious to watch on so the screen. So you will watch the show like, now? No. Or if I did, I'd have to I'll skip, skip the spider the, scenes for you. I mean, isn't that like the first, I would have to start watching it this book. <laughs> the spiders are really only in the second book and the first half of this one because the bugs were this book. Yeah, but I don't know. If, I still don't think I'd want to watch it. This is this is. Oh my god! This is the only chapter that I was like, "Wow!" I if the rest of the book was like this, I could read this all the time. It's just really funny because Machiavelli keeps getting his hopes up, 
and he just keeps getting disappointed. And he's even like, I'm supposed to be the smart, cunning one, and she just completely yeah. outsmarted me. And he was upset because he didn't get his chance at, like, revenge because she defeated him before, and he was looking forward to a fight, and they didn't even get to fight because she just... She just ran, and she even says, she's like, you got to know when it's time to run. Yeah, because Juan's like, aren't you going to fight them? I want to see you fight. And she's like, "Um, I'd rather just go. But she's also smart because she's like, it would have been one thing to fight, you know, if Joan and Scatty would have joined her. But if she was on her own, it was going to take a lot for her to try to defeat the two immortals and the and the whole army underneath and the sphinx like which takes away her powers and, like and the sphinx like that would have been she would have been going up against some terrible odds so like she i just loved like how she outsmarted them like why would they have left their boat unattended stupid yeah also it's really funny because asia fully texted me after she finished chapter 67 she's like get there read to it i love the chapter and i loved it too and it's funny because you know on the flight machiavelli is like I wonder why the Dark Elders are scared of Paradell. And I'm like, I feel like we know at this point. Like, we've been given enough indication that she is capable and smart. And, and you know, she's resourceful. And, like, think about how much, and we get that at the very end, too. But think about how little Paranel has used her aura since she got captured. Like, Nicholas, like, every book he's like, I can't use my aura. It's going to age me. And, like, every chapter he's like, oh. Green energy, green spell, transmutation, green spear, spider ants, sugar ants. Like, let's open up this lay gate. And Paranel, like, she used her aura to blow the wind for the bugs and to make the ice storm for the Sphinx. Like, I'm probably forgetting one or two other times that she's used her aura. But, like, in the same amount of time, she's barely used her aura because she's just been smart and thoughtful and resourceful. So, yeah, yeah, she's and that's why this book is named after her because she freaking rocked it. Yes, and like I said before, you know, you take away the spiders, the bugs and her chapters are definitely the best. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm very happy for her. She's so cute and then, you know, let's head over to the UK crew. Let's see what's going on over there. So, this is where we learn because Gilgamesh, when they first meet him, he gets a little bit defensive because he says that Nicholas and Paranal, I guess, tried to kill him. But we learned that the Flamels didn't try to kill Gilgamesh. They actually had him locked up in a mental institution so he wouldn't try to be blown up by the first atomic bomb that they were working on at the time because he really just wants to die. Like, Which is why he makes the twins promise to take away his immortality. Like, He doesn't want to live anymore, which... It's honestly just really sad. Yeah, it's pretty awful because, I mean, we've all heard kind of a lot of the immortals, like Paranel calls immortality a curse. Like, we know that it's lonely. We've discussed that, too, with Percy Jackson, even, that, like, immortality mm-hmm. is a really lonely time. But, like, Gilgamesh has been around for all, longer than all of them, like, tens of thousands of years. And he doesn't even have an aura. He can't, like, he can't do magic. Like, he can't even, like be a boss like he's just kind of got to like live and it seems like he's kind of indestructible like yeah it looks like the other immortals i feel like they're more prone to death and injury it kind of feels like gilgamesh like he gets hit by the arrow in the arc from the arc he's like it's not gonna do anything like he's beyond he's which invincible. is really he's invincible as well as immortal and that's gotta be awful yeah and, like, I totally understand why Sophie's, like, in tears because his life seems miserable. And, like, like 
Nicholas says, like, his brain is overloaded, which has driven him crazy. Like, he's been alive for just too long. long. There's too much content. He's confused as to what was real and what he's dreamt about. Like, I can't imagine. But at least he does teach them the magic of water. But I did think it was funny, like Charles said would happen. Gilgamesh says that, you know, water magic is the best. Just like Francis said, fire magic was the best. And Endor said air magic was the best. I still at this point feel that fire is the best, in my opinion. Oh, I'm always team water because, I mean, I'm an earth sign element. Like my zodiac sign is an earth sign. sign. But I definitely, like, whenever I watch Avatar, The Last Airbender, or Korra, I'm always water. Like, Well, in Avatar, nice the firebenders are the evil people. But, but they're anyway, really powerful, too. I only say fire is the best because just based, I mean, we haven't learned that much. But water, I mean, they didn't. You have to have water to do yeah, things. Yeah, they pulled it from the ground when they used it. But, like, fire, they create fire. And they generate it. Also, I liked how they how they talked about you can use fire to heal. That's also why I'm like fire to me just seems like the best because it's healing, but it's also destructive, and you generate yeah. it yourself. Well, water is normally used to heal, like definitely an avatar it is, and you can use it. Though I don't think that in this series we get it used for healing. I would generally think of water like in the 21st century and like real life as more of a healing thing. Though fire definitely does have healing properties, like we sanitize things with fire, but. Yeah, no, fire is cool, and I agree that, like, the generative power of it, that you kind of control it entirely, unless you lose control, is pretty cool, that she can just kind of summon it. But we'll wait till you read to the next book, because in the next book, we'll get to Earth Magic. Yeah. And I want to hear your take on the line that we get then. <laughs> and, but then after they learn the water magic, Josh is so annoying again. I gave him so much credit last reading. I was like, he's not as annoying because he got awakened. And he's like, learning magic wasn't spectacular enough. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, it gets worse because, <sighs> like, I wrote so all this down because, so we know Josh complained earlier about, you know, how he wants to be an individual. He wants to be separated from Sophie. But then Sophie, when they're talking about learning the different elemental magics, she says how that makes her feel more complete. She feels like there's always been pieces of her missing. And as she learns more, it's coming, herself is coming together. And he says in response, well, maybe you just won't need me anymore. Like need him as her twin anymore. And I was like, what is wrong with you? What is, what is wrong with Josh? Like that doesn't even make any sense. You're the one talking about how you want to be an individual and separated from your twin. And she literally makes a comment about how this is making her feel not even separated from you, but she's making her feel complete as an individual. And you're like, well, so that means you don't need me anymore? I don't understand how he got there. I don't know. understand how her saying I feel more complete made him feel like you don't need me. Like, I don't, like, that logic, like, I don't see the connect between those two things. Also because for somebody who he just was talking about how he wants to be, like, individual, independent from her, like, and the idea of, like, If you're twins, you don't have to be fully reliant on each other. Like, you should still be two individuals. But that's what he said before. But when she makes a reference to that, then it's not okay when she says it. Yeah, he doesn't know what he wants. He both wants to be equal with her, but he also wants to be separate. Like, it sounds to me like he's really the codependent one, if you ask me. Yeah. Like, at least he didn't stop to get Clarant at the end, because that would have been really selfish Mm -hmm. of him. But, like, right afterwards, he's, like, ready to die in battle at the end. He's like... Only, like, if I die, Sophie lives. I'm like, one, 
why are you brave without the sword? Because that's out of character for you. Mm-hmm. And two, like, then we get that little toxic masculinity popping up again. Maybe it could just be, like, sibling protectiveness. But I just think that he, like, his his two aims, like you've said, it's, it's confusing because at one point he's like, I want to be the same as Sophie. I want us to be twins again. I want us to be exactly the same. I want us to be equal. And he's also like, I really want to be an individual. And... Either way, even with either of those, he should be happy for Sophie to feel better about herself. And she feels better as the pieces of the magic are coming in. So whether he wants to be a twin with her or wants to be separate from her, either one of those, he should be happy for her. I think, like, going back to, like, toxic masculinity, I think because ultimately what he wants is they either need to be equal or he needs to be better. He needs to be the individual and she needs to be below him. It can't be that... It can't be it can't be that she's above him, which is where they are right now. That's why he he makes cons comments like, "Well, I'm just trying to be your twin again," and it's like just because she's found these powers so far, like why does that make her not your twin anymore? Why is it such an issue for you that she's above you in this exact moment? Like, it's definitely just an interesting dynamic. Yeah, well, we're definitely gonna get a lot more on it, but yeah, I was this like I was pretty frustrated with Josh to be perfectly frank. Yeah. Well, luckily, he does manage to open the gate, and they make it back to San Francisco, and we finish, almost, because then we get the epilogue where Dee is lying in the mud, and he's like, oh my gosh, I failed so hard, but (laughs) as long as my elders can't touch me, I can live forever as an outlaw. Like, he can go on the run, because I guess to take away his immortality, they have to physically touch him. But then he rolls over in the mud. And he finds Clorant, the sword, sitting next, sitting like right next to him, which he fuses with Excalibur. And Gilgamesh is stumbling around, you know, <laughs> makes a comment. And he's like, the two that are one, the one that is all. And I was like, what? Does that Ooh. mean that the prophecy is referring to Excal- Excalibur and Clorant and not the twins? Like that was, I mean, it was a perfectly placed plot twist of like, questioning everything literally the like the last line of the book and i was like what <laughs> yeah i'm doing a lot of mind blown signs yeah. on this <laughs> but so to your question i think that it might be but i don't think completely because we know there are two more elemental swords we have our fire and our ice or fire and water i guess we should say but we have two more julius and durandel which we'll meet in the next one and John, what is his name? D has them already. It's too many, too many people. But I could be wrong. The swords are definitely important, and they're going to figure in now that D has all four of them, which is basically like he's going to be his saving grace against the elders. And the thing is that the prophecy could mean multiple things. It doesn't have to just mean the twins or just the swords. But we have one set of fused swords, so I expect that the other swords will also fuse. And then you now have two mega swords swords. also i just have to point out like i was talking to my friend who listens to the podcast and he hasn't read the series he's not reading along he just listens and we were talking about how d chose his odor as sulfur and he's like d is such a dramatic teenager wait we they choose their odor yes they said that we discussed this we did they choose their like they can they have a little bit of control over it like it's a naturally, like, preferred thing, like, but they do choose it. D specifically Why? says that he chooses the brimstone odor. 
Why would he do that? That's nasty. Well, that's the thing is he says he does it because it's dramatic. He says he oh, likes I feel like it I for the effect. This. I, it just yeah, it to me doesn't make sense how you'd be able to choose. Like I feel like it would it would have to do with like your inner core. Like I mean, it's kind of like your Patronus on Harry po- in Harry Potter, where it's decided, but it can change based on your personality and like big dramatic life choices. Okay. But it was so funny because he was, like, listening to that episode, and he was like, wow, D sounds like such a dramatic teenager. Like, we know he's 500 years old, but he's so dramatic. He's like, I want the most dramatic odor that smells like something. And then this epilogue for D, where he's just lying in the mud, I was like, wow, he is such a teenager. Like, he's so existential, just lying on the ground, angsty. He's like, what am I doing with my life? Let me go find a play toy. Like, it was really funny that... We just got that, like, full circle moment of my friend listening. And then also, like, this cha- – I read this chapter right afterwards where I was like, oh, my God, D is being a child. Him and Josh, just just two children. Like, they need a reality TV show. Like, adults behaving like children. <laughs> Let's wrap it up there before we go crazy. Anything else you want to say, Asia, before we finish? Actually, yes. Ma- something Machiavelli says earlier on he mentions that one of the side effects of immortality is a diminishing appetite, which, you know, I like to eat. So that to me, that would suck. And he wonders that if the Flamels deal with the same thing since they made themselves immortal instead of having a dark elder make them immortal. So I just wonder if we're going to like learn more about that. But also I just comment on it because I was like, all these terrible things about being immortal, like I wouldn't want to like lose your appetite because he says how you're just eating food at that point for fuel and yeah we've kind of gotten that indication like from like joan didn't say it scatty we know she just eats vegetables as fuel she doesn't really need food and joan like is a pretty heavy vegetarian so i don't know we haven't gotten any confirmation but it kind of sounds like maybe that all the immortals it's really just for fuel wait that that just made me think of something else are we going to get an answer or maybe they already answered and I don't remember. Remember how Sophie and Josh all of a sudden are like, they don't want meat anymore. Like they become vegetarians. It has to do with the awakening. Does the awakening, is it just cause their taste buds like is meat overwhelming or it's like gross. I think it has to do with like, I might, I might be wrong, but I think it has to do with like the morality of like killing animals, but I can't be, I don't think we've gotten a confirmation. We've just kind of gotten the indication from all of our immortal characters and our powerful characters that they just don't consume meat. Yeah. I don't know why. It might it might be the taste buds smelling that way could definitely be it. That's kind of what Sophie says. She kind of feels like. So it makes her like nauseous. And so I was like. Because obviously the immortal people they talk about like they don't. But then when they were awakened, they first Sophie. Both did And then it. after yeah. Josh was awakened, he was also like the thought of meat like made him sick to his stomach. And I was like, what about like, yeah, is it a moral thing? Is it an actual smell or taste thing? I was just kind of curious. Maybe we'll get. It also could just be like a fuel thing because meat is actually like we, you know, in society, we generally think of like meat as a good source of protein, but plant protein is actually better for you and a better fuel anyway. Mm-hmm. So it could be just, like, a logical thing of once you're using your aura and you're burning through calories with your aura, like, realistically, fruits and vegetables are the best thing to recuperate. Mm -hmm. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, and legumes. And just a little bit of exercise science for you today. Like nutrition. Yeah. Just a little bit of of nutrition. (laughs) But they – we know these things because – we have, we're dancers and athletes, so that's why we are pretty familiar with this sort of stuff. We're not just making it up. Um, <laughs> I feel like I have to clarify that. But I think it might, that might be it too, that it's just like 
realistically for recouping calories in a healthy and sustainable way, especially if you're going to do it for 600 years, it might just be like meat is not, it's like not that good for you, especially red meat. Like Mm -hmm. it's really bad for your cardiovascular system. Yeah. But we didn't give it an answer, but let's, we'll keep an eye on it for sure because I also would not want to not be able to like taste like like food tasting good is so good. Yeah. But yeah, we'll keep an eye on it for sure. We'll as we dive into the next book, which we'll start next week. We'll start the fourth book in the series, The Necromancer. We'll be reading chapters one through thirty three for next week. So if you're reading along, read up to there. I believe this is Machiavelli's book because it's gray-black, and we know Machiavelli's aura is gray. I didn't think of Machiavelli as a necromancer. He hasn't done it yet in the series. He might in the next book, but I could be wrong. But I'm pretty sure based on what the author tweeted at us, it's got to be Machiavelli's book because he's the only character we've met with a gray aura. I mean, Scatty has a gray aura, but she's definitely not the necromancer. So we'll see. But we'll try to figure it out next week, chapters 1 through 33. And if you have any predictions, theories, or questions, or you want to talk about the Nicholas Flamel series more, remember that you can stay in touch with us on the Nerd Party website. Just head over to nerdparty.com contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there, and you can get in touch with the network on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at the Nerd Party and on Facebook.com slash The Nerd Party. To find me, I'm at AsiaBonia on Twitter and at Asia.Bonia on Instagram. And I'm at C.E. Sheeland on both Twitter and Instagram. Remember that we're a podcast, so we, you know, grow with listeners and subscribers. So remember that if you enjoyed it, rate and review the show, share it with your friends. And of course, check out the other awesome podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. We have so many great ones that you can listen to. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. Yep. Hit that subscribe button and have a good one. We'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.